we would say, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. This stuff is totally compatible with businesses. Businesses use free software. It's possible to profit from using free software. It totally works. But what I would tell myself if I could use a time machine is, hey, that's not good enough. Just being compatible is not good enough. It was actually a fatal flaw in the whole design of the movement, the whole vision of the movement, that it depended on ongoing volunteer labor or donations from people. It didn't have a built-in economic feedback loop where the more and more people we freed, the more and more resources would be directed into this movement. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. Hope you all got some relaxation during the holidays because 2020 looks set to be a big one. Last week, I put out a call for junior producers and I'll just say thanks to everyone right now because the response has been a bit overwhelming. You'll see the results of this initiative starting next week with more frequent episodes as we move back towards our every week format and more diverse topics that I find worth discussing, but which go beyond my personal theories of the moment. On today's show, we're doing something a little different. Earlier this week, I enlisted Coindesk reporter Lee Quen and early cypherpunk Zuko Wilcox for a conversation on the history and long-term development of technologies ranging from the pre-internet days up to basically the creation of Bitcoin, with the goal of re-examining some of the most common mantras you hear repeated in crypto, yet which some days can seem more about keeping the price party going than anything supported by the evidence we've seen. In case you don't know, in late October, I joined Coindesk as editor of a new audio and podcast division, where I've been having a blast working with a team of hardcore reporters and support staff who take this stuff as seriously as I always have. But I want to be clear that the Let's Talk Bitcoin show is not part of the work that I do with Coindesk. We're just as independent as we've always been, with the show jointly owned and creatively controlled entirely by myself, Andreas, Stephanie, and Jonathan. Oh, and a big thanks to our sponsors, Brave.com, eToro.com, and Purse.io. If you'd like to support the Let's Talk Bitcoin show as a sponsor, you can email adam at ltbshow.com. So we'll be back next week with new episodes. But for today, sit back and enjoy Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn's deep dive with Zuko Wilcox. Hi, I'm Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn. In this podcast interview, we'll explore bare arguments related to Bitcoin as an asset and as a network. Today, I'm joined by Zuko Wilcox, co-creator of the Privacy Coin Zcash and Modern Day Cypherpunk. Thanks for joining us today, Zuko. Oh, thank you. It's an honor. Let's talk about this cliche, everyone in crypto can't stop chanting, that the emergence of this new software is like the early days of the internet. I know that you grew up in the 80s when there were less than 200,000 computers in the whole world that had access to the internet. Do you remember your first conferences and devices? The early days of the internet for me were BBSs. You know what BBSs were? No. You had your personal computer in your house and you connected your telephone to your personal computer and then you dialed a certain phone number and that would let your computer connect to this other computer running in some other person's basement. I remember dial-up. Yeah, but we were dialing up not to the internet or to AOL, but to other people's computers that were like little social hubs, like little groups. So that was my earliest experience with the internet. That wasn't actually the internet. It wasn't actually TCP IP, but it was the same effect for me that I was able to meet and connect with strangers who were willing to help and teach and be friends with you, even though you didn't know each other and you were anonymous to each other. So back when you started to watch the internet emerge out of that, 
How did you think it would impact society? Oh, when I discovered the internet, internet, which was a couple years after I discovered BBSs, I remember I took a bus ride back to my hometown. I had moved away and it was time to go back and visit my high school buddies. And so I took a like five hour bus ride on Greyhound and <laughs> it was probably 1992. And on the bus, I started talking to the people next to me in like the other seats. And I started telling them about this thing I had discovered now that I was in college called the internet and how it allowed anyone to communicate with anyone around the whole world and how I thought that would probably put an end to war. So I was very enthusiastic about the internet at that time as a transformative technology because before then, people couldn't communicate like normal people who weren't newspaper writers or politicians or CEOs couldn't communicate with people from other countries. You couldn't make a phone call or send a letter. I mean, you could, but no one ever did. You only communicated with people in your own country. And in fact, you mostly only communicated with people in your own area because phone calls to a different area cost money. Only local phone calls were free. Was there anything in the early days of the internet when you were first exploring it that you believed would come true that did actually come true in terms of how it impacted things? No, it definitely did not put an end to war, but it did revolutionize so much. Almost everything that I thought it would do, it has done or is doing. It changed government and society's attitude towards freedom of speech. I guess that's now potentially rolling back in the last year or two. But from my perspective, this modern movement to limit freedom of speech and to have more censorship and curation and control over troublesome words, that's just going back to where we were in the 1980s. At that time, it was just widely assumed by governments at all levels and by all the broadcasters and newspapers and all the people that there were a whole bunch of things you couldn't say and you couldn't talk about. You couldn't say dirty words. You couldn't talk about unusual sex, which included homosexuality. I mean, not as a general principle. It wasn't impossible to talk about those things. It wasn't illegal in the United States to talk about those things. But as a practical matter, you weren't going to be able to get your message out if it included too much of that stuff or without sufficient like framing and padding to sort of slip it past the barriers. Like musicians had to carefully judge how much they wanted to say what they were actually were thinking about versus how much they wanted to make it possible to get radio plays so that they could make money off of it and so forth. And what I think people today don't realize, like everyone who grew up, you know, subsequent generations who grew up during and after the revolution of the internet, they don't realize that the existence of the internet just changed the fundamental assumptions of everyone involved. It changed it from nobody can say anything without our approval effectively. I mean, you can talk to your friends, you can write a book and publish a book, but you can't necessarily get that book into libraries or bookstores. And so effectively, the four or so broadcasters and the couple or three major newspapers and the major publishers had to give approval to get a message to any substantial number of people. And because of the internet, that's reversed so that someone who wants to control 
and filter what information reaches large numbers of people will have to take some really substantive action in order to intervene. It's really reversed. And that percolates through society. It also changed laws. Like people don't realize that there were a whole bunch of laws about what you could and couldn't say, which the internet just violated. The internet was illegal. Like, for example, in Canada, there's a whole bunch of laws which are certainly well-intentioned and make sense that you can't talk about important court cases if that could influence the jury. And as soon as the internet came out in about 1992, there was a major, salacious, exciting court case in Canada that everyone wanted to gossip about, and it was illegal to talk about it in public in Canada. But people continued to talk about it on the internet, and the Canadian officials couldn't do anything about that. And what I'm getting at is that over the course of decades, what people don't realize is the internet forced the governments to change. The regulators and the legislators of all of the internet-enabled countries had to adapt to the facts about what the technology allowed their people to do more than they've been able to change the internet, actually, so far. And this might be changing in the last five years or so, led by China and Russia, and now followed by UK and US. So this does highlight some really exciting potential when we think about Bitcoin, but I still want to dwell a little bit on the early days, just to think if there's any more insights that we can apply. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience with Linux and how you think some of those kinds of open source projects that you contributed to for years failed to achieve their original vision? Oh, hell yeah. All these things happened for me in quick succession. I was 15 when the Berlin Wall fell and that upended my whole worldview. I thought that there was an evil empire that was threatening to nuke everyone and that there was endless war. And then all of a sudden I woke up one day and the Berliners were celebrating and drinking beer on top of the wall and nobody was shooting them and it was all over. And I thought, wow, national borders have suddenly dissolved and ceased being jail cell walls. And then I discovered the internet. And like I say, I thought that meant now anyone could talk to anyone. That means we can all like work our differences out with communication instead of starting wars. And I discovered digital cash those same years. And it was also in 1993, when I discovered Linux, my buddy at college said, hey, you know what's awesome is install Linux on your computer instead of Windows 3.1 or whatever it was. And then you get to see and control all the inner workings. You can recompile it and edit it yourself. And so I took his advice and I downloaded about 13 floppy disks, three and a half inch floppy disks worth of install binaries and booted Linux. And from that moment forward, I only ran Linux on my computer, and I broke it and had to recompile it or <laughs> debug it so many times. And then for me, actually, and maybe for the whole rest of the world, the open source revolution sort of came second. So Linux came first. And for me, digital cash came next. I moved to Amsterdam and started working with David Chom on digital cash. And then what happened was Eric S. Raymond wrote The Cathedral in the Bazaar, and Netscape, having been defeated by the evil monopoly Microsoft, while it was going out of business, they decided to open source Netscape. And Eric Raymond had written that letter. Bruce Perrins had proposed the notion of open source, which was a 
more ecumenical and business-friendly branding for free software that Richard Stallman had been preaching for years. So we, all us coders and hackers, already use GCC, written by Stallman and the other free software hackers. We already use Linux, written by Torvalds and the other Linux hackers. But those were tools for our use. And there was the Richard Stallman religion, uh, which a lot of people believed, the free software religion. But when Mark Andreessen wrote a letter that says, Dear Internet, congratulations, you just acquired a web browser. And the most important web browser became open source, then that forced everyone else to start thinking about it as not just for us programmers, but for everyone and a revolution just like Stallman had planned, although his <laughs> his words were about freeing everyone, but in practice, it was only coder tools like Emacs that anyone used. But Mozilla was not a coder tool. It was the interface to the internet for everyone. And now it too was free and open source software. I find it really interesting when you're talking, because for me, I only know Linux as this thing that coders really love to geek out about. And everyone seems to hold it up as a success, as the pinnacle of what we should believe can be done with open source software. But yet, I remember you tweeted in October 2019, something that I can tell from the tone was a delightful zinger. But as someone who does not understand Linux very well, I don't understand why it is a zinger. Um, (laughs) You can see my smirk, though, when I said it. Yeah, because there's exclamation points. And you said, we're still winning. Google uses Linux in its Panopticon phones, and Facebook uses open source software to run its servers. Why is it then that those things happening isn't the mainstream adoption that had originally been imagined? Yeah, the mainstream adoption that we all believed in at the time was freeing all people. Like there was this thing that at the time was a sincere call to action, a movement, a social revolution, and that quickly turned into a bitter joke. And that was the year of Linux on the desktop. (laughs) This I've heard. Yeah, you've heard the joke, but it's a joke because it's mocking our failure. There was a startup called Helix Code founded by Nat Friedman, who's now the CEO of GitHub, which just got bought by Microsoft, which was just going to make an operating system that was going to supplant Microsoft operating system and Apple operating system. And so that your mom and everyone would have freedom and personal control and personal safety when they started using their computer and when they started using the internet. And there was an operating system called Ubuntu that was a successor to Debian, a free open source operating system. And Debian was too much aimed at geeks, like the intent of Debian, the purpose, and the reason why we geeks spent our evenings and weekends contributing bug reports and patches to things like Debian was we were going to free the whole world. We're going to have, you know, all the billions of people around the world were going to be able to be self-sovereign and connect to each other without censorship or interference because they were able to use Debian. But it turns out in about this era, I don't know when Ubuntu came out anymore. I don't remember years anymore. My head is full of cotton balls, but I guess that would have been about 1994, 95. And Ubuntu said, okay, Debian is great. The software, the technology is a great start, but we've noticed that the people who use it are all geeks and programmers. And so the bugs that get fixed are the bugs that scratch the itches of geeks and programmers. 
And Ubuntu said, we want to take this to the next level. We want to polish it up. We could have it a good UI and you know, get it pre-installed on all the Dell computers that ship in all the stores, and it's just going to replace Microsoft. And so we had a bug tracker in Ubuntu. And bug number one was Microsoft still has a majority market share. And so the Ubuntu project said, we're a free software, open source project. Everything will always be free. And we won't declare victory until we fixed bug number one. And we have more users than Microsoft has. And then what else? Mozilla, the peer-to-peer movement was a part of this. This all mixes together. Linux and free software and open source and Ubuntu is a movement. There was a joke that went around on mailing lists and IRC back in those days. It wasn't even a joke. It was, was it a joke? I don't know. It was like a tagline some people would put at the end of their emails, you know, in the .sig section. It says, of course, Linux is about freedom, not about efficiency. If we cared about efficiency, we would be spending our evenings and weekends installing compact fluorescents in people's offices for them. <laughs> I mean, like, this sounds so familiar to me. Exactly. It's the exact same movement or the same, like, purposes and what's the word? The same values and sentiments and social energy. Because we were spending our evenings and weekends, like, teaching people, here's how you install Linux on your personal computer. Here's how you install Linux on all the computers in your work. And we had this plan, this movement. I mean, it was a very decentralized movement, right? Just like it's something that just seemed very familiar to you. There's no single leader. There were a few companies that, like I mentioned, a couple of the companies, but they were by far only just like supporting or redundant, like extra layer of defense companies. They were not the controller or the leader of the movement. Of course, this is what should seem very familiar to you. It was a decentralized movement. And all of us members of it would spend our evenings and weekends trying to teach people how to install Linux on all the computers in their offices and try to advocate to them for why they should do that in order to gain self-sovereignty and freedom from the, you know, the power structures and the exploitative nature of the evil monopolies of the world. And we had this whole plan that we were going to produce all the other missing pieces. We were like, okay, yeah, we got an operating system, but people are also going to need a word processor. So we had this word processor called OpenOffice which was going to be just like Microsoft Word, except it was all free and open. And so people would be empowered. It would be decentralized. It would be maintained voluntarily by all the coders around the world. And that too should sound familiar, like the missing pieces that we all have a vivid imagination of how it's all going to come together once we finish adding in the missing pieces until it does everything that everyone needs. And so in answer to your question about why do I perceive Linux as a failure when you, from your perspective, perceive Linux as something that's very successful for its purposes. It's because as that vision faded from a dream into a joke, then some of the believers, you know, drifted away, lost faith, lost interest, got too busy with their day jobs. And a lot of them got hired by the big corporations like Intel and Samsung and whatever, Microsoft even, eventually years later, after (laughs) they had sufficiently won the war that they could start co-opting the losers. And they redefined success. I remember there was a comic strip. I don't know if it was XKCD or one of those other comics. I forget the name of that comic that came out every week for a few months. That was the comic strip about the free software open source movement. It was really funny and bitter. (laughs) Like a lot of good comedy comes from a real place of outrage. Comes from heartache. Yeah. It's like Jonathan Swift, you know, it's funny because it was sincere moral outrage that made it so funny. Anyway, but somebody made this comic strip where 
a couple of Linux hackers are talking to each other. And one says, ooh, I figured out a patch to where we can have 256 CPUs at once on a supercomputer. And the other one says, but can I play videos on my laptop yet? And the first one says, no, but why would anyone want to do that? <laughs> and that was the joke. It was that Linux was no longer keeping up. Now you could play videos for the first time on Apple and on Windows using like uh, whatever the names of those video codecs you'd have to install. But that didn't work on Linux. But Linux was getting co-opted. It was getting improved by Intel and Samsung to run batch jobs on their supercomputer or on their servers or whatever. But the improvements that would make it good for the revolution and for the movement weren't keeping up. They weren't getting in. And that's why that comic strip was a funny, bitter joke. To answer your question, that's why it seems to me like a sad failure, but there are still a couple groups. There are these partisans who are like the last dead-enders. I went to the Libra Planet conference, which is the free software conference, about four or five years ago before Zcash swept my life away. And I told them, hey, guys, I think we're... I think we're losing. Like, There's a billion new people who started using the internet and they all use these proprietary front ends. They all use Android and you know iOS and Facebook and they don't have any freedom. They don't have any self-sovereignty. And the people I was talking to were in denial. They said, no, 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 we're still winning. Android and Facebook use free software inside their servers and inside their kernel. And I just shook my head. I said, but that doesn't matter. That wasn't the point. The whole point wasn't to increase efficiency for megacorps and monopolies. The point was to free everyone and give everyone self-sovereignty. And we're losing at that. But they didn't want to hear it, you know, because that's depressing. And maybe they still have a dream and they still have a plan how it's all going to come together. Then the other group is coders. Coders still use Linux. Coders still install Linux on their laptops. And if I told them Linux, you know, is a failure, we're not freeing people. They say, oh, yes, we are. I run Linux. I'm free. I don't have to run Windows on my laptop in order to use my GCC and my text editor, my code editor and all that. So anyway, that's my perspective is not only did the dream fail and fade, but it happened so gradually and the denial and the cognitive dissonance was so strong that it's been denied. No one's ever admitted. No one's ever publicly written the obituary or the mea culpa for how that whole movement didn't free people. And, you know, a billion more people got onto the internet, but only under the control of some globe-spanning monopoly megacorporation, not as self-sovereign members of the internet. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with Matt from Purse.io for another Sponsored Minute. Hey Matt. Hey Adam. At Purse, our mission is making crypto useful. We believe that the value of Bitcoin goes up for everybody when we expand its use case as digital cash. At Purse, we enable Bitcoin users to buy anything on Amazon with their Bitcoin for big discounts. We also spend half our resources as a company developing open source tools to get Bitcoin into more hands and make Bitcoin easier to send and receive for everybody. These tools include the Bitcoin full node and SPV node, the Bitcoin wallet, and the multi-sig server. All these applications are under active development and they get better every day. Check out our documentation and library of introductory developer guides at Bitcoin.io. We can learn everything from cross-chain atomic swaps to building web-based Bitcoin tools with the Bitcoin library. To start saving today, visit purse.io. And for more information about Bitcoin, visit bitcoin.io or just look it up on GitHub. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. This 
This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by eToro. With eToro, you can create a diverse and flexible portfolio of the world's most popular crypto assets. Follow trends and market data with charts and price alerts. And you can even learn by trading in virtual mode with $100,000 of test funds available as soon as you start your account. eToro was founded in 2007 and began adding crypto trading in 2013. It offers support for 140 countries, including U.S. traders. eToro has no hidden fees, no commissions, and low spreads compared to competitors. It's easy to get started with automatic account verification and 24-hour weekday support. Create your account in minutes right now at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot Please trade responsibly. Crypto assets are volatile and trading carries risks. Once again, thanks to eToro. And now back to the show. Okay, so I'm starting to see that there's definitely a correlation then between Bitcoin and the early days of the internet. But I think for Bitcoin, we're even in a more problematic spot. Because I remember in the 90s, seeing store websites for the first time. I remember my dad bringing home a computer. I remember 10 years in, people starting to ask questions about what is this internet thing and how can we use it? I don't think that we've reached that level of mainstream curiosity and experimentation with Bitcoin a decade in. And so I guess what I'm wondering there is when we think about mainstream adoption, you pointed out that usually what mainstream adoption means is death by a thousand cuts to the ethos that the technology was built to promote? Mm. That's kind of the success case is where you have an idea, a movement, whether it's like a startup religion, like a cult, or a new technology, or a new political movement. If they succeed, if they scale up, they always become diluted, and the fundamentalist adherents always decry the new version as having sold out. But that's the success case. That's when your new idea does impact a hundred million or a billion people. Yeah, no, definitely. But in a more moderated and multifarious and like ecumenical form, that's the success case. The failure case that I think the Linux on the desktop, the free software empowering everyone movement has seen, and that I think crypto is in danger of, is even worse than that. It's where you don't Not only do you not influence a billion people with a diluted, moderated version of your idea, but in fact, you don't influence a billion people at all. It's just someone else takes those billion people and you're irrelevant. So I apologize. It's going to be a hard one, but it's something that I really grapple with. How do you market your vision as an entrepreneur, even still while trying to be honest with users and having all of this background, understanding that mainstream adoption is tricky at best and is never going to really lead to, or at least hasn't proven an ability to lead to a future in which everyone is going to have perfect privacy and be able to run their own node. Maybe someday they will, but when you're trying to market Zcash and you're trying to get people on board with this idea, how do you be honest with them while also getting them inspired about the potential? Right. That's a great question. That is a struggle. It is nuanced to market and get people inspired without misleading them. I think you can do that just by being honest and clear about the distinction between vision and current practice, right? And also be clear about the distinction between possibility and inevitability. So it would be dishonest and overselling to tell people this is inevitable Everyone's going to use this in five years. And so 
you want to get on board now. That's not necessarily true, but it's honest and fair to tell people this is the vision, this is the dream, and it's possible. We can do this. Revolutions like this have been done successfully before. And so you can see it, you can believe in it without being dishonest. So I think when we talk about hyper-Bitcoinization and Bitcoin mainstream adoption, a lot of people definitely still push that narrative of it is inevitable that Bitcoin will replace all currencies. But there is this level of nuance where like Bitcoin could be popular and global without necessarily it becoming the only thing that exists as a currency. When you think about what is possible based on precedent, what do you think is possible and realistic to have as a goal? That's a great question. And by the way, at some point in here, I need to explicitly say that everything we're talking about here is like true of Bitcoin and Ethereum and Zcash. None of this is me saying, Bitcoin can fail in a certain way so that Zcash can succeed. That's not it at all. All of these are ways that we're all going to succeed or fail together as a shared social movement and a shared revolution. I think it's important because there's a lot of people out there who incorrectly think that I benefit from Bitcoin failing or I want Bitcoin to fail. And so when we're talking about ways that Bitcoin can fail, it needs to be clear that this is also the exact same ways that Ethereum and Zcash would also fail and that I don't want any of them to fail. We're talking about the bear case in order to avoid it and not make the same mistakes that have killed other glorious ideas. That's just to clarify that people don't think I'm saying something I'm not with regard to that. I actually want to address what you just said there because I think it's really relevant, especially with the Nakamoto debacle this past weekend on Twitter. There's still this ethical orthodoxy that some people apply to the space in terms of who gets to be viewed as a quote-unquote real Bitcoiner. And this question really haunts me as someone who is not a coder. What does it mean to be a Bitcoiner? We usually, when we think about cypherpunk, when we think about the definition, that is someone who uses software or privacy tech to impact social change. But then when I will talk to people and refer to other kinds of people that might use Bitcoin for its purpose, they'll be like, oh, well, that person doesn't code, so they're not a cypherpunk. So I think that we're still, as part of the movement, trying to figure out how it is that we can accept each other and our different views and roles in that kind of revolution. And I appreciate you pointing out that it's not just about Zcash, it's not just about Ethereum, that in a lot of ways, the things that we're talking about as weaknesses apply to all and are necessary in order to strengthen them all. So that mystery or that debate or the social sort of sturm und drang about who's a real Bitcoiner, You should realize that that is just normal fundamentalism. And I don't mean fundamentalism in necessarily a pejorative sense, but if you look up the definition of fundamentalism on Wikipedia, it's actually really interesting. Originally, the word fundamentalism was used to refer to religions specifically. But the first two sentences of Wikipedia say, fundamentalism is a specific sort of kind of religion. However, fundamentalism has come to be applied. I'm going to just read this. This is good stuff. Okay. That thing with like the Bitcoin maximalist movement, that's just a normal fundamentalist movement as a subcategory or a subset inside a larger movement. And that always happens with all movements. Like Wikipedia says, fundamentalism has come to be applied to a tendency among all kinds of groups. I'm not reading, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not just religion. And there's a few characteristics that are normal of all fundamentalist movements. One is strict literalism as applied to certain scriptures, dogmas, or ideologies. The second is a strong sense of the importance of maintaining in-group versus out-group distinctions. 
And that results in an emphasis on purity and returning to a previous ideal. Fundamentalists almost always have the notion of a return to a previous ideal from which some people have strayed. And therefore, it's important to reject diverse, challenging ideas in order to maintain in-group versus out-group distinctions. And I just want to point out this Bitcoin maximalism movement, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I am saying it's just another example of that same pattern of fundamentalism that arises in all movements. It arose in the Linux free software movement that I described earlier. It arises in every religion once it scales up big enough. It arises in all movements that scale up big enough. And it can have some benefits, like it's a strong meme. It has a, a lot of sort of virality. It has a lot of simplicity and purity, which is useful for communication. However, you should just realize Fundamentalism never scales up. The fundamentalists always imagine that what's going to happen is they're going to persuade everyone else to accept their strict interpretation. But that's never what actually happens with fundamentalism. Uh, It sort of self-limits the maximum scale it can reach. And if it does tend to scale up more, then what happens instead is they schism into uh, separate in-group versus out-group segments with different interpretations of the strict literalism. Whereas the things that scale up are always the fuzzy, more accepting things where the emphasis is not on just figuring out who's in and who's really true and who's really a heretic versus the emphasis is on something else. It's on, you know, in a religion, it's often on expanding in other ways or helping people in different ways. And in all kinds of different movements, there's a difference between the fundamentalist version, which is literal and focused on in-group versus out-group, versus the fuzzier and more open version. And the open version is always the one that scales. Anyway, so I just wanted to, you said it was sort of like disturbing or confusing to you about those debates, like the recent debate that came up about Nakamoto.com, which I wrote an article and I served as a moderator on the Telegram chat for like 48 hours. And I just want to let you know, that's a totally normal social process in all such political movements and everything. So in defense of Bitcoin maximalists, I do think that there is a place for people who want to focus on one thing to focus on one thing, and that's perfectly fine for them. And maybe that there's reasons that they believe that that one thing will be the thing that lasts. And so that's where they want to invest their time. But I think to your point about the precedents that we've seen... I totally agree. You don't need to defend Bitcoin maximalists for me. I love Bitcoin maximalists. Bitcoin is awesome. And the purity and consistency and stability of both the technology and the platform and that fundamentalist section segment of the community is really great that that exists and that we have it. But it's not going to scale up. It's just okay. It doesn't have to, to help and to serve its purpose. I want to address that issue of scaling. But first, I want to return to this other question because it's something I'm really curious to hear about from you. If you were to go back and talk to yourself in your 20s, What would you want to tell yourself and your friends? What would you want to do differently when it comes to the early days of building open source software and the early internet? What do you wish that you knew then that you know now? Oh, absolutely. The number one thing is think about for-profit and economic parts of the revolution. There was all these debates back in the day, like some people would say, oh, this whole free software, open source, Linux revolution is like a fantasy. Some arguers, some enemies or, you know, contradicting opinions would say, because it's like basically socialist. It's just all volunteer and it's just like communism and communism never works is what they would say. And among the free software Linux 
fanatics who were like pro-capitalist, we, and I include myself in that category, we would say, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. This stuff is totally compatible with businesses. Businesses use free software. It's possible to profit from using free software. It totally works. But what I would tell myself if I could use a time machine is, hey, that's not good enough. Just being compatible is not good enough. It was actually a fatal flaw in the whole design of the movement, the whole vision of the movement, that it depended on ongoing volunteer labor or donations from people. It didn't have a built-in economic feedback loop where the more and more people we freed, the more and more resources would be directed into this movement. And that was its fatal flaw. Therefore, it got less and less energy and more diluted and disparate over time, and it faded out because there wasn't a way for people to profit and to quit their other jobs and work full-time on this job until more and more people could do that. It couldn't scale up economically. So you keep using this word free. And I know that free is a really, it's an exciting word. It's a word we all want to imagine that we can possess and give to others. But it's a really complicated and problematic word as well. Every time we end up promising each other that we're going to have freedom, that we're going to earn it, that we're going to distribute it, we rarely do. And what we end up just doing is trading, in Iran, there's a saying, the crown for the turban, like you just trade one regime for another. Who says that? In Iran, like when the Iranian revolution happened. Oh, right. In America, we say, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Exactly. So I used to be really idealistic when I thought about movements, socialist movements among them, Zionism, things like that. And just in general, they seem to, some fade faster than others into the previous system, but that's generally what happens to them. So when we think about wanting to create this technology that is focused on delivering freedom, okay, I'm going to give one example that I think is kind of ish worked, and then I want to hear from you what you think is realistic for us to prioritize, to focus on, to tell people so that we're not misleading people and selling them this kind of lie. I think we've seen with political revolutions that generally they end in bloodshed and chaos, and we've seen in economic revolutions that there's uh, short-term exploitation of the vulnerable at a massive extent, and then just kind of reshuffling. But we can see things like liberalism or feminism, things that are not strictly defined as what that freedom means, evolve with each generation. So that what would be considered a feminist today, you know, being able to freely express herself is not even remotely what it would have been 200 years ago, but both of these people would consider themselves. Yeah, it's changed every generation or so. Exactly. So when you think about cryptocurrency, we think about this idea of cypherpunk freedom, and we know that it will not stop war because we tend to bicker with each other. What is it that we think is realistic to get people excited about and to hope for? I think maybe we can stop war this time, by the way. I haven't given up on that. But anyway, what is it that's realistic to hope for? No, I really like your point, trading the crown for the turban, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And Something I really love about the crypto Bitcoin movement, which we did have in common with the previous movements, like the peer-to-peer movement, which was part of the free software movement and had all the same sentiment. And the idea was it's going to be decentralized this time, so there won't be a new boss in order to avoid that pattern. That's really important. Do we have revolutions that don't have a boss? We do have things like liberalism, feminism, romanticism broader movements in which there were influential figures without a boss. But do we have technology movements that don't have a boss? 
Well, to my mind, technology is one of the least likely things to come with a boss. I guess nowadays, a lot of people perceive technology as being Facebook and Google and other dominant platforms. But to me, that's not technology. That's centralized network effects. The technology part is the opposite to me. It's empowering of individuals. Maybe this is naive or outdated of me. Did you feel like technology comes with a boss? I feel like for me, technology requires a translator or a watcher at any point because I can't talk to my computer. When I open up my terminal, it speaks a language I don't speak and I can't talk back to it. So anytime, even when I'm using self-sovereign technology, I require someone that is an intermediary between me and the technology. However, that is something I generally aspire to correct. I'm not sure if it's realistic for me to expect that the mass majority of people will learn to speak computer. I do think more people could speak computer. I think you're right. And I think this is really important. We're on to something here. So the old style decades ago was that you had to become an expert. You have to become a doctor or you have to become a priest in order to know God. And you had to become a programmer in order to use computers. And that was where the original free software movement failed as we attempted and failed to make the leap to providing a way to use computers without becoming a programmer. And the next alternative is what you say where you get an intermediary. So you have a priest who can help you talk to God, or you have a doctor who can help you know what to do with your body. And that's where you're saying you basically need help to use any kind of self-sovereign software today. You need someone else who is basically probably a programmer to explain it to you. And I totally know where you're coming from. That's really true. And then the next alternative is what we've seen the whole world evolve to in the last about five years, which is that there is an AI that helps you. Google has gotten easier and easier to use every year for the last 10 years. Why? Because They've improved the automation until it has become an AI that helps you use it. Same for Apple, et cetera, right? Same for WeChat or whatever. That's the trend for the last 10 years. I think there's another alternative that we haven't seen yet, which is that there's an AI who helps you use technology, who helps you understand and know how to use stuff and helps you do what you want to do. But that thing works for you and is loyal to you. It doesn't work for a corporation. That's the future. It's possible. I don't know if it's the future. It's not guaranteed, like we said earlier. It's not inevitable. But that's the only future that I want my children to live in is one where they're empowered and that the AI that they depend on is loyal to them. I got this idea from Albert Wenger, the Silicon Valley venture capitalist, who wrote a blog post a couple of years ago, several years ago. He called it the right to be represented by a bot. And today, I guess we would say the right to be represented by an AI. But he analogized it to a lawyer. Like we were talking about doctors and we we're talking about priests. And also there's this thing about lawyers. If you ever get sued or divorce or have a criminal accusation or anything, and you've got to deal with a court, you're really not supposed to show up there and try to do law on your own behalf for yourself. That's like operating on yourself if you're a doctor. You're supposed to get an expert who knows how courts work and has experience, but there's a really, really important fact that's like baked into the laws and the culture of the United States and for long before the United States. It's baked in so deep, it's like deep into the firmware of our world's operating system, is that if you're depending on someone like a lawyer 
who's representing you and is like defending you against an accusation or negotiating on your behalf with someone else, that person is fundamentally disallowed from having any conflicting allegiances, right? He cannot have a side deal with the other side. He cannot have any kind of relationship with the other side. He has to work for you and you alone. And this is so important. This this duty of loyalty, it's called, that if there's any even hint of violating that and of working for someone else on the side when he's supposed to be representing you, then he could just lose his job and never be allowed to practice law again. That's the rule. That's the way it works. Well, we should have that for an AI. If you're depending on an AI to help you understand how to use technology and to help you do what you need to do, there should be a fundamental law. That AI is not allowed to have any allegiance, any loyalty, any monetary relationship. It cannot be under the control of some third party who's trying to profit off of you or trying to manipulate you. This is really encouraging. I love talking to you about this because it just shows that nihilism isn't the only good take to have in crypto. And I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Most internet browsers act like a vacuum cleaner for your data. You never know where this data will end up or which election it might impact. Brave browser is different. Brave stands for authentic privacy, and it gives you back control over who has access to your online activity. Brave has a novel mechanism for transferring value between users, advertisers, and creators, and it ensures that you only see ads that you opt in to view. You get rewarded for your attention, so you can support your favorite content creators with those rewards. So when you use Brave, you don't need to participate in the hoovering up of your personal data. Experience a better internet. Join over 8 million monthly active users and over 300,000 verified content creators. Go to brave.com slash LTB and switch to Brave today. That's brave.com slash LTB. Brave.com slash LTB and switch today. What if money could be created without an authority? Are corporate coins the first step towards techno-neo-feudalism? Is the real darknet run by state intelligence agencies? Bitcoin and open blockchains educator Andreas M. Antonopoulos answers these questions and more in his latest book, The Internet of Money, Volume 3, now available on Amazon. Following the worldwide success of Volumes 1 and 2, this third installment contains 12 of Andreas' most inspiring and thought-provoking talks. Available in paperback and on Kindle Unlimited, order The Internet of Money, Volume 3 on Amazon today. I wanted to offer some thought that's come to me as we were going through this history and then give you the floor to wrap things up in terms of how it is that Bitcoin does or doesn't compare to the internet in the early days. For me, if I think about maybe like 300 or 400 years ago, you would have people of a lower class who had cooking skills and people of an upper class who literally could not have made themselves a sandwich if they needed to. They just didn't use kitchens, you know? And I think today, just about anyone can make themselves a grilled cheese sandwich. Doesn't make them a master chef, but like people of all different classes can access like a very basic understanding how to use a kitchen, even if they already have personal chefs and things like that. And I guess what I'm hoping about the future of cryptocurrency is it has that ability that, you know, maybe I'll never be an expert programmer, but I might be able to make myself a grilled cheese sandwich with self-sovereign technology, like do the very basics that I require to survive and also interact with other people who might be more skilled chefs 
When you think about where we are today with Bitcoin and how it compares to the future of the internet, what are the thoughts that you think you want to wrap us up with in terms of where we compare and where we differ? That's a really good thought. Somebody said on Twitter recently that I saw that the iPhone is an amazing product because there's some pretty poor people that have an iPhone or an iPhone equivalent thing. And there are some like billionaires who have like a billion dollars and they use actually pretty much the same product in more or less the same way as each other. That's pretty amazing. And that ties into my thought that one, the positive future, the good future is where we keep going down the path of smarter and smarter AIs, but they don't all work for a mega corporation. I mean, everyone else relies, a billion people rely on them, but they're loyal to the mega corporation. Instead, they're loyal to their user. That would put you and the billionaires on the same footing or close to, closer. And it, try to answer your question. The key issue is the same one that I would tell my 20-year-old self if I could go back in time, which is focus on the economics. The development and the evolution of technology and of society is going to follow the flow of funding. So if the centralized megacorporation is the point through which all the money flows, then they're going to always be the ones who control and influence the development of the technology. And the users are always going to be vulnerable and reliant upon them. It's all about the economic feedback loops. The reason we're all vulnerable to Google today is because of the advertising-based model where all the money flows into Google and then out again. It comes from some people, namely people who want to buy ads, and then out again to lots of other people, but it all flows through the centralized node, a nexus, which is Google. And that's why we're all vulnerable to Google. And so for many years, there was debates in which people told me, I said, we should have like an AI that's loyal to the user. And therefore, the user should pay for it. Like, you can't have a lawyer that's loyal to you if someone else is paying that lawyer's bills. That's illegal because it's clearly a conflict of interest and it puts you at risk of being taken advantage of, if that's the case. You have to be the one paying the lawyer. Or at least nobody who has a contrary interest and who's like on the other side of the table or who's attacking you should have any financial connection to the lawyer. Well, people would tell me, no, that's impossible. In the new world, no one will pay for anything. Everything has to be free. And they would also say it would be immoral to require people to pay for things because then poor people couldn't afford it. But then Netflix came along, right? If everything has to be free, then how come people pay for good quality entertainment? They pay a subscription. So what if you could pay a subscription like $10 a month or whatever you pay for your Netflix subscriptions? And what you get for that is that the AI agrees not to serve anyone else. It'll refuse to serve anyone else, to have any links to anyone else as long as you pay it $10 a month. We do have an opportunity to revolutionize the world. It's not going to replace the crown with the turban because of the nature of the technology. It truly is decentralized and user empowering. But we have to have an economic feedback loop where the people who are benefiting from it are also the people who are paying for it in some way. Because if someone else is paying for it, then they will eventually take it over. Gotcha. So it is very, very much like the early days of the internet, but like the early days of the internet, we face a fundamental challenge of making sustainable ethos through economics. 
Zuko, I really would love it if you can speak to that, because for me, when I've been reading about the history of the internet, something that stood out to me was that governments and even militaries were the ones that were funding the early development of the internet and yet not monopolizing it. But today in cryptocurrency, we have governments that are strictly regulating, but also countries like China that are creating their own digital currency. I'm not really sure how that would in any way impact Bitcoin. But when you think about the way that governments interacted with the development of a technology in the early days of the internet and how it's interacting with the development of cryptocurrency, do you think there's any comparison or distinction that is important for us to keep in mind? I think maybe some governments did try to monopolize the internet in various ways. There was the whole clipper chip backdoor into all the internet devices. There was red flag Linux, which was going to be the Chinese government's version of Linux back when everyone thought that Linux was going to be the revolution. But I think the fact is that governments are terrible at producing things, so they're not going to be competitive. And they either have tried and failed or they've given up before even trying. And the current zeitgeist in the United States, at least, is that the government of China is different. Like the government of China is not just like a government. It has superpowers. It has AI or it has the ability to control the economy and benefit from all of the brilliance of all of the Chinese scientists and entrepreneurs or something like that. But I'm pretty skeptical. I think all governments are alike throughout history and throughout the world. So I'm not expecting any really effective competition on the technology or product level from any governments. So perhaps not competition, but in terms of control, right? Because the technology is decentralized, but I always say this to people, all of you can get thrown in jail. And they can definitely make regulations that would make it hard to use the technology in certain ways, right? Yes, absolutely. And they do do that both in China and the United States. So then in terms of thinking about early days of the internet, do you think more government lobbying, more cryptography? Like, what would you wish you could go back and tell yourself in terms of like not imagining that things would be regulated the way that they are now? The regulation of the internet in the United States hasn't been all bad over the last 25 years. It's, it's kind of worked out. There's some deep errors and problems with it, and they might in part be what has led to the monopolies in the United States today, like Facebook and Google. But on the other hand, at least it didn't prevent the development of the technology and the deployment of the technology. I think what I would probably go back and say to myself and my like fellow cypherpunks on the cypherpunks mailing list in the 1990s, where we did indeed argue about exactly these kinds of questions, I think I would say, don't focus very much on regulation. The best thing you want from regulation is that the government stays out of the way, that it has enough clarity and enough predictability that everyone else can plan how to work around it. What you need to focus on is the product, the technology, the deployment to the users, helping more and more users as fast as possible. We can move faster than governments, even the government of China, and we should because we don't have any time to lose in empowering and freeing everyone in the world. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's episode was sponsored by Purse.io, eToro.com, and Brave.com. This episode featured Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn and Zuko Wilcox. Music for today's episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz, with editing by Jonas. Have any questions or comments? Email adam at ltbshow.com. 
And with luck, we'll be back next week with full host discussions. Have a good one.